Hey everyone, Steve here. So, I probably shouldn't tell you this, this sort of falls into the too much information category, but when Sabina and I go out for a date, unless we go to dinner and a movie, more often than not, we end up at Barnes & Noble. We take a look at the books and magazines, pick what we want to read, and then we meet in the cafe for dessert and coffee. Apparently, I'm blessed with a wife who's as much of a geek as I am. Anyway, at some point, I always end up at the table where the discounts are, meaning the books that nobody bought, so they sell them at rock-bottom prices to get rid of them, so they can make room for the latest Shades of Grey novel and other examples of fine literature. Okay, enough of me being snarky. The other day, we were at Barnes & Noble, and I was perusing the remnant shelves when I ran across a treasure of a book. It's called The Verse by the Side of the Road by Frank Rousam. It's the history of the Burma Shave Company. Now, before you go looking for a more interesting podcast about watching paint dry or watching grass grow, just give me a chance here. This is actually a really interesting story. When I was a kid growing up in West Texas, about once a month, we'd pile into the family station wagon, a rambler as I recall, and drive to my grandparents' house in Roswell, New Mexico. Yes, that Roswell, but that's another podcast. Along the way, my brothers and I would keep our eyes out for a series of six little red signs that would occasionally pop up on the horizon alongside the road, each one with a piece of a poem on it. Those signs were ads for the Burma Shave Company, the manufacturer of a popular shaving cream. The company started in Minneapolis back in 1925 as the Burma Vita Company. Their original product was a liniment, a salve, if you will, that had ingredients from the Malay Peninsula in Burma, which explains the name. But the product didn't sell all that well, so instead the company introduced the Burma Shave brand and started selling shaving cream instead. The shaving cream did really well. In fact, it was the second highest selling shaving cream in the U.S. for quite a long time. But I want to get back to the signs. That was a simpler time in America, in the world, where things moved more slowly, both literally and figuratively, and our engagement with each other and the world that surrounded us was acute and part of life. The author of the book that I picked up described a typical weekend this way, and I quote him. Often a picnic lunch was taken with the food packed in advance according to the custom of the 20s, rather than as now with oddments flung into an aluminum ice chest. There were hard-boiled eggs with a pinch of salt folded in a square of waxed paper, a shoebox of sandwiches, perhaps peanut butter and jam, or slices of corned beef or ham and cheese. There'd also be soda crackers, a tin of deviled ham with wonderful fork-tail red imps on the wrapper, and a jar of stuffed olives. There'd be a bag of potato chips, some cold-roast chicken that had been located at the extreme back of the icebox, a supply of grapes or oranges and tangerines, cold milk in the thermos, and bottles of ginger ale or grape juice for those grown up or almost so. So let me be clear about something. We all tend to get nostalgic about the good old days when things were simpler and life was grand. Today, I hear lots of people talking about getting back to the good old days of the 50s, which were pretty good, unless, of course, you were a woman or a member of pretty much any minority group. But I digress. This is not a pean for better earlier times. It's just me remembering a different time as sort of a contextual placeholder. So back to our story. Each set had six signs in it, and they were spaced far enough apart that a person in a car could read them at a specific cadence as they went from sign to sign, and it went kind of like this. Feel your face as you ride by. Don't you think... It's time to try Burma Shave. These signs were silly and corny and innocent, 
and carefully selected to avoid annoying anybody. At 35 miles an hour, it took about three seconds to pass from sign to sign, 18 seconds total, which was far more attention than print ads could expect to get from a reader. And of course, nobody could read just one sign. They also created excitement because passengers in cars couldn't read ahead to the end. Now, much of the credit for the success of the little signs goes to Leonard O'Dell, the company's president back in the early days. America was a massive country, and the multi-day family road trip became a rite of passage for a lot of people. Plus, let's face it, gas was cheap, roads were good, motor courts were everywhere, cars were large and comfortable, and there was a lot to see. So Odell saw the brilliance of advertising along the country's increasingly well-traveled roadways. Of course, for the campaign to work, they needed the poems that got spread across each set of six signs and across the country. His kids, Clinton and Allen, wrote all the jingles for the first few years. And then, apparently, they lost their creative spark and they tried contract writers for a while. They didn't work out, so the company decided to do an annual contest. A hundred dollars, a lot of money at the time, would be awarded to the jingles they selected for use from those that people sent in. And entries arrived by the thousands. In the mid to late 30s, the signs had become a part of the American psyche. They were like family, kind of like that goofy uncle that everybody knows that has the corny jokes that everybody pretends to hate but secretly loves. So to help expand the public's perception of their brand, in addition to their commercials, they started putting out public service messages. Here are a few for you. Past schoolhouses, take it slow. Let the little shavers grow. Burma Shave. Don't stick your elbow out so far. It might go home in another car. Burma Shave. And this last one. Drove too long. Driver snoozing. What happened next is not amusing. Burma Shave. So... How did this whole sign thing actually work logistically? Well, you have to ask Fidelia. Actually, Ask Fidelia became the company mantra because Fidelia Dear Love. Say that with me. Fidelia Dear Love. How can you not love that name? It sounds like something out of Austin Powers. Anyway, she was Alan O'Dell's secretary, and she handled all the logistics of the sign campaigns. She had huge maps in her office covered with pins showing the current and proposed placement of signs. Well, the campaign started out slowly, although they didn't skimp on cost. By 1926, Burma Shave was spending $25,000 a year on signs just in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa. That's more than $350,000 in today's money. By 1929, they were spending $65,000, and the campaign reached to both coasts. The only states without signs were Arizona, New Mexico, and Nevada, because they didn't have enough traffic to justify the cost of installation and maintenance, and Massachusetts, where there were too many curves in the roads and too much foliage to contend with. People just couldn't see far enough ahead to see the signs coming. The signs were ultimately placed from Maine to Texas, with a total of 7,000 sets of unique signs. That's 40,000 signs in total. There were 20 to 25 new jingles in constant rotation. So here's how the process worked. Burma Shave would send out what they called an advance man who would travel the countryside looking for good spots for new sets of signs. He was looking for very specific characteristics. A straight and level road, good sightings that were at or near road height, no other signs around, especially billboards to distract the viewer, and long sight lines to build the suspense when an upcoming series of signs was spotted by someone in a car. 
Now, once the advanced man found a good spot, he'd look for the farmer who owned the land. He'd give him a free jar of Burma shave, show him the signs, and ask him if he'd like to have them along that fence over there. Many farmers would ask, how much was it going to cost me? And they were surprised when they learned that Burma shave was going to pay them anywhere from $5 to $25 a year, depending on how desirable their particular location was. Once they reached an agreement, they'd pace off the location, tying colored cloth to fence posts to show the installation crew where to place the signs. The installation crew were usually farm boys who would drive around in a truck that was covered with Burma-shaped jingles, digging a minimum of 36 post holes per day and sticking signs in them. Each hole was at least three feet deep. The installation team, by the way, they were referred to as the company's PhDs, an abbreviation for post hole diggers. <laughs> I love that. So the sets of signs were manufactured in Minneapolis during the long Minnesota winters and then shipped to regional warehouses around the country where the installation teams would collect them. And then armed with information from the advanced men and from Fidelia's detailed maps, they'd fan out across the country in late February and wouldn't come home until Thanksgiving. Each truck would leave the regional warehouse with about 40 sets of signs, that was six to seven days' worth, and then they'd return to restock at the end of each week. The PhDs would also hand out free samples at ball games and wrestling matches. For the first five years, the signs were one-inch pine boards, 10 inches high and 36 inches wide, and they were dip-painted. They were either red with white lettering or orange with black lettering, and they alternated the colors every year. The letters were about four inches tall, and they were silk-screened onto the wood. Now, early on, they were installed on nine-foot posts that were 10 to 20 yards apart. But as roads got wider and cars got faster, the signs went from 10 inches high to 12 inches to 18 inches, and they went from three feet wide to 40 inches wide. Initially, they were installed 20 yards apart, as I said, for the slow-moving vehicles of the 20s and 30s, but they were ultimately spaced 50 yards apart as the cars got faster to maintain the cadence that everyone had come to expect when reading them. Now, let's talk about challenges for a minute. They did have some, but they weren't what you'd expect. Cows liked to rub against them, knocking the signs off kilter. Hunters liked to shoot them. Rodents liked to eat them. And horses liked to arch their backs, walk under the signs, and scratch on them. They finally had to move to 10-foot posts to take care of that problem. Of course, all good things naturally end, and in 1948, the company fortunes began to turn downward. Eisenhower's newly built interstate highways got people off the smaller rural roads where the Burma Shave signs lived, and towns were bypassed. People drove faster and paid less attention. The trip became more about the destination and getting there quickly than enjoying the journey itself. The signs became expensive. They were spending about $200,000 per year by 1960, and print, radio, and television distracted people from the simple, less sophisticated messages presented by six little signs in the desert. The days of the Burma Shave campaign were numbered, and in 1963, the company was sold to Philip Morris. The last task of the company PhDs was to go out and saw off all the signs at ground level and cart them away. It was the passing of a company and the passing of a time. Rousam ends his book with this jingle. Farewell, O verse, along the road. How sad to know you're out of mode. Burma Shave. In 1997, in an attempt to take advantage of the occasional bursts of longing for nostalgia, 
the American Safety Razor Company, part of Philip Morris, reintroduced the Burma Shave brand with a nostalgic shaving soap and brush kit, even though the original Burma Shave was a brushless shaving product. And by the way, when Philip Morris acquired Burma Shave, the signs were discontinued on advice of counsel. Lawyers. Really? So I'll end with this. In Canada, they use the word Burma Shaving to describe politicians who stand on the side of the road during election season, holding campaign signs and waving at passing cars. I love Canada. For the Natural Curiosity Project, think of me along the road. I'll see you in the next episode.